Welcome to your weekly constitutional, underwritten by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. Your host is Professor Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at the Duncan School of Law of Lincoln Memorial University. If you're old enough to remember the 1960s, then you may have seen this television ad. It's black and white, and it opens on a pastoral scene of a little girl pulling petals off of a daisy. Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. Now you may be misremembering if you think you saw it because it only ran one time on television. Depending on your perspective, it was either one of the most effective political ads ever or one of the worst. Uh, A close relative of mine claims that he was so angry when he saw it that he fell out of bed and many other people felt the same way. It's relevant today because it was part of the 64 campaign when Senator Barry Goldwater, who refused to rule out the use of nuclear weapons in Southeast Asia, was the Republican nominee. Uh, The slogan he used was, in your heart, you know he's right. The Democrats came back with, in your guts, you know he's nuts. So his mental fitness was very much an issue in 1964, and it led to the survey of a number of psychologists and psychiatrists, which was then published in a magazine called Fact, which led to the development of something called the Goldwater Rule. Later on, we're going to hear from John Gartner, who is the organizer of a group called Duty to Warn, which feels that we face many of the same issues today with our current president. But first, let's hear from Dr. Charles D.K. of Yale Medical School, who's going to tell us about the Goldwater Rule. The Goldwater Rule was a response to psychiatrist's opinion about Senator Barry Goldwater just before the 1964 election. Um, A few months before the election itself, it came to light that Senator Goldwater most probably suffered what his wife called a nervous breakdown or two nervous breakdowns in her interview to a magazine called Good Housekeeping Magazine. She said that under the stress of running the family business in the 1930s, he suffered two nervous breakdowns. So um, in, in, the, in an intense political atmosphere, uh, this became a heated issue, and um, some individuals wanted to take advantage of that. The publisher of Fact magazine then sent surveys to psychiatrists uh, with only one question, is Barry Goldwater psychologically fit to be president? 
Oh my, that, that's to, quite a, that's quite a question. I think wasn't there one other issue that was lurking in the background here, and that was the issue of um, Goldwater's refusal to rule out the possible use of nuclear weapons in Southeast Asia. Wasn't that really what caught a lot of people's attention back then too? Well, it was an intense, just like the last election, it was an intense uh, political atmosphere where people were worried about um, one's ability or stability regarding the use of nuclear weapons. And there were, you know, ads on the TV with, you know, with um, uh, concerns that to one of the candidates, in this case, Senator Barry Goldwater, would probably lead, uh, presidency would lead to uh, nuclear catastrophe. So that was in the background. And to associate his mental status, which was now being um, questioned with the possibility of nuclear catastrophe, you can imagine how the atmosphere was more intense as a result of that. Certainly was. Okay. So I interrupted you. You said a, in a publication called Fact Magazine then uh, yes. sent out this survey. So the survey was sent out to over 12,000 psychiatrists of which a little over 2,000 responded, the response rate of about 20%. And out of that, 1,189 psychiatrists opined that Senator Barry Goldwater was not psychologically fit to be president. And there was also a place for comments, and they made comments about his personality, uh, uh, difficulties, his dangerousness potential, and all the other comments that would make someone worried about someone's psychological makeup, Dr. Barry Gold, uh, Senator Barry Goldwater's psychological makeup. So the Fact magazine then printed this article without any comment about the 12,000 psychiatrists who received the survey, without any comment about the other guys who had negative opinion, uh, a positive opinion about Barry Goldwater, but only on the 1,800, 1,189 psychiatrists who said, Barry Goldwater was not psychologically fit to be president. Yeah, no matter and, which side of Barry Goldwater or the Johnson debate you were in 1964, that I've I've looked at, at that 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 was a hit piece, and it was it was not at all scientific, was it? No, well, it wasn't as it should have been. It was not rigorous. Um, there there were no checks and balances. There was no opinion on the other side. It was only this uh, selected opinions from a selected group of psychiatrists. And the editor concluded, Barry Goldwater is paranoid, he's unfit, he's perhaps troubled by intense anxiety about his manhood. And so this was a very, very uh, impactful publication at that time. Barry Goldwater, as you know, lost uh, the election, but both the American Psychiatric Association and the American Medical Association condemned the survey and condemned the results, condemned the article in the newspaper. The American Psychiatric Association in 1973 then amended the ethical guidelines of uh, psychiatry by adding what is now known as the Goldwater Rule, which essentially is a response to how psychiatrists should or should not comment on the mental state of individuals who are in the public light. And it says ex explicitly that, that it's unethical for psychiatrists to comment on such individuals, be they politicians, actors, actresses, um, you know, sportsmen, anyone in public life, that it's unethical to comment on their mental status or to provide a professional opinion, is the word you use, 
is unethical to provide a professional opinion without examining them, you know, psychiatric examination, and without obtaining proper authorization to release the information, to provide your professional opinion. So there are two issues here, two ethical issues here that you described uh, last year in a symposium at Yale. So let me just make sure I'm clear on it. First of all, it's not ethical to give an opinion unless you've actually made the examination. And then even if you have made an examination, thereby establishing uh, a patient-doctor relationship, uh, it's unethical to discuss the results of that examination without the patient's consent. So the examination itself and consent, two big ethical issues. Absolutely. It, and it has to be an informed consent, which means that you, the, the, the patient or whomever is giving you the authority must know for whom you are doing the assessment and who you are going to be making the, um, you are going to be presenting your professional opinions to, what the likely consequences might be of your releasing your opinion. So it, it's got to be an informed consent for them to be able to provide you the authorization to release uh, or to make your professional opinion about their mental status. Well, as you know, a number of your colleagues, while they acknowledge the existence of the Goldwater Rule, the importance of the doctor-patient relationship and all of, all of the other things that you point out, they say they have a countervailing ethical duty. They call it the duty to warn, um, which you know, I'll state it in lay terms, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, basically says that if if you think that a patient has uh, presents a danger to a third party, uh, you have to warn that third party. And their argument is that uh, our current president presents a danger to the entire planet and that that duty to warn overrides uh, the ethical obligations of the Goldwater Rule. Well, the duty to warn comes out of the California Supreme Court decision in 1976 which actually is a duty to protect. Um, and, and basically what it says is that a mental health professional like myself or a psychiatrist or any mental health professional um, who comes in contact with uh, information from their own patient that a third party is in danger should take reasonable steps to protect the identifiable or identified third party. And that protection, if you can if you can achieve the protection without breaking confidentiality, that is actually more preferred. But in some instances you might not be able to protect the individual without breaking confidentiality, in which case then you have to warn either the uh, identifiable or identified potential victim and the police. Or uh, in which case you have to do that, then you're breaking confidentiality. But it's a relationship that occurs in, it's, a, it's an obligation that, that flows out of your doctor-patient relationship. Uh, the doctor-patient relationship engenders in the psychiatrist or in the doctor certain duties to the patient. The positive duties to the patient are to treat them with honesty, with fairness, with respect and dignity, and to protect their privacy. So, so that's the, the duties. Now, after having done an assessment, a dangerousness assessment, or a risk assessment, if you are now uh, led to believe that somebody's life is in danger based on your assessment, which includes the interview, which includes gathering of uh, collateral material, which includes collateral interviews of you know, relatives and friends, 
once you have used all the tools of your training, of your expertise and knowledge to come to a conclusion that somebody's life is in danger, now you have this obligation to protect that individual's life. The problem I have with my colleagues is, and, and this is what the Goldwater rule is trying to was trying to prevent, is casual and careless expression of professional opinion on somebody whom we have not examined. So we haven't done any of these um, uh, examinations. We haven't used any of our tools, of our training and expertise to arrive at a conclusion. We haven't done a risk, a formal risk assessment, which will determine that somebody is actually dangerous based on our professional training. We haven't done any of those things. And yet we are offering opinions that somebody is dangerous. I think that is quite problematic. Well, the, the counter argument, and I'll play devil's advocate here, is that in yes. this age of communication and with a president who has been this visible in, in the media, that perhaps it is possible to at least come up with a partial diagnosis or at least state a concern based upon the public record. But I'm guessing you don't agree with that. Well, one of the things we learned very early in medicine is what they call differential diagnosis. So, so a certain symptom can be a symptom of multiple diagnosis. Even psychiatric symptoms could be symptoms of medical illness or symptoms of side effects of medication. And that's why it's important to not jump to a conclusion based on what you see, number one. Number two, how people act in public sometimes is completely different from how they act behind closed doors. How actors perhaps might act when you're in front of a camera, or how you know everyone knows that the camera, being in front of a camera, makes people react or present themselves in different ways. And so how somebody acts in a camera, in front of a camera, is uh, if you, for you to make a, a professional judgment just based on that alone is problematic. And I think that is, that's the thing. I mean, when you have it, you can have differential diagnosis of what you think might be going on. But to be so firm in your conclusion about an individual that you have not done any assessment, I think is really concerning. So I understand the, uh, the devil's advocate. I understand the counter argument. But I think that unless you have talked to people who are close to someone who have seen them uh, outside of the glare of, of the media and who understand who understands how they react to things in different circumstances. Uh, unless you've seen that, or you have seen a, uh, you had the chance to examine them, it's very, very, I think we have to be really humble about what we see about this thing. Well, Dr. Charles D.K. of Yale University, thank you very much for explaining this rule to us and stating your concerns about it. It's Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris. And this week, it's about the duty to warn, the ethical obligations that mental health professionals face when they're asked to comment about our current president's mental stability. After the break, we'll hear from Dr. John Gartner, who feels that the duty to warn outweighs the Goldwater Rule. Stick around.
You're listening to your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week we're discussing an extremely important topic and one that's become quite controversial lately, uh, the professional debate between psychologists and psychiatrists on whether it's appropriate for such professionals to give professional opinions on our current president's mental stability. Now, we heard before the break from Dr. Charles D.K. of Yale University, who thinks that something called the Goldwater Rule prevents such commentary. Now we're going to hear from a psychologist who feels very differently. My name is Dr. John Gartner. I'm a psychologist. Uh, I taught at Johns Hopkins Medical School for 28 years. But the reason I'm on the uh, radio and your podcast today is because I started an organization called Duty to Warn. It's an association of mental health professionals who believe that it is their ethical duty to warn the public that Donald Trump is dangerously mentally ill and unstable and unfit to be president. That's how our movement got started. Um, Unfortunately, we have turned out to be more correct than we even believed because he is not only mentally unfit, he is unraveling. Uh, What we are seeing is a process of deterioration in Donald Trump's mental health. So the things are actually terrible, but they're actually getting worse. They're getting worse in some ways politically as we slide towards authoritarianism, but they're also getting worse psychologically. Uh, He suffers from a personality disorder first introduced by Eric Fromm, a psychoanalyst who escaped the Nazis. Uh, It's called malignant narcissism, and Fromm introduced it to explain the psychology of authoritarian dictators. It actually combines four traits, narcissism, you know, I alone can fix it, paranoia, all his conspiracy theories and a sense of victimization, scapegoating of uh, minorities, which is very important right now, antisocial or sociopathy, personality disorder or sociopathy, the tendency to lie and to violate rules and norms and have no remorse. And finally, the fourth component was one that people focus on the least, but right now I think is actually one of the most important, sadism actually taking pleasure in harming people who are weaker than yourself. So all of these things come together in kind of a totalitarian leader who is grandiose, who feels he's under attack by enemies and minorities, uh, and who is ruthless in his uh, aggression against them and doesn't mind using lies or breaking laws to do it. Uh, what Eric Fromm, everyone was hoping that Donald Trump was going to pivot and become more presidential uh, after he got the nomination and then the election. And what I warned was that Eric Fromm warned us that malignant narcissists get worse over time in general, and especially when they gain power, because it inflames their grandiosity and paranoia and releases any inhibitions for acting out their sadistic uh, aggression. Well, I guess I understand where the uh, title duty to warn comes from, but as I'm sure you know, it is very controversial for a psychologist or a psychiatrist uh, to, uh, your critics would say, diagnose somebody whom you've never personally examined. So let's, let's address that issue right up front, shall we? How, uh, is that an ethical issue yes. here? Is that a professional issue? How, why have you resolved it in this fashion? Well, actually, it's both an ethical and a professional issue. On the ethical level, um, I think it's common sense, but it's also enshrined actually not only in our ethical code, but actually in the law in all 50 states, that a mental health professional is actually a mandatory reporter. If you have information that usually it's your own patient, uh, that if your own patient, for example, is potentially uh, threatening someone or could actually harm someone, you have a duty to warn that potential victim. Well, what we're doing is basically inferring if we have that, and that that trumps confidentiality, it trumps every other ethical responsibility you have. Your first responsibility is to save the life of that person. 
so if you take that ethical principle and then multiply it to hundreds of millions of people, uh, then I think our ethical burden is 100 million times stronger to warn the population that this person is truly dangerous and truly a threat to their physical survival. And I mean that quite concretely. We just published a book, Rocket Man, uh, about Donald Trump, the mind of Donald Trump and nuclear madness. And the point is, is that this is someone who has the unilateral authority to launch nuclear weapons at any time for any reason without anyone else's say so. And they have to be in the air in 10 minutes. And yet this is someone who wouldn't meet the fitness criteria to even load the bombs onto planes. That, that uh, actually is the reason that drew me to your attention, uh, because I happen to uh, know uh, Steve Buser, who actually mm -hmm. wrote, wrote a widely quoted article, I believe it was in the New York Times, um, and he was then subsequently talked about it, and then, of course, subsequently, he was one of the contributors to your book. But just to make sure we cover this entirely, you're mentioning nuclear weapons, and didn't this come up in the context of something called the Goldwater Rule? How do you, how do you respond to critics who say that the Goldwater Rule should be what you're applying here? Well, so first of all, uh, I'm saying in all ethical considerations, you often have competing interests, right, where you have to choose between what ethical principle is the most paramount. And so what I'm saying is the general principle in life, in, in my religion of Judaism and in the field, is to protect uh, life and to protect people in danger first. So that's the ethical point. But there's also an intellectual point. Um, I actually interviewed the last living member of the commission that actually created the Goldwater Rule. And what he said is it was never intended to be a gag order to stop mental health professionals from speaking out, but they were concerned that the original incident with Goldwater uh, was a very irresponsible article that someone published in a magazine now defunct called Fact, in which they argued that uh, a thousand psychiatrists say that Goldwater is mentally ill and shouldn't be president. As it turns out, um, they were making wildly speculative sorts of diagnoses. This is before we had the DSM. So this was in the Freudian era where they were saying that he was a latent homosexual or that he'd been scarred by his potty training, very speculative things that made psychiatry look, look silly. So that was why they were saying people should use restraint and not just wildly speculate about public figures. He didn't mean that no one in the future should ever be able to comment on a public figure. And this was also before we had the diagnostic system that we have today. So they were making these speculative um, uh, uh, speculations about his internal mental processes. Our diagnostic system today is based on observable behaviors. All the diagnostic criteria are based on observable behaviors. So just to pick one of the components of malignant narcissism, for example, antisocial personality disorder. Well, one of the main criteria is lying. Does the person lie? Well, we know it is a fact that Donald Trump has told something like 5,000 lies, according to the Washington Post and fact-checking organization. So that's just a fact. Does he violate laws and norms? Yes, that's just a fact. Does he show a lack of remorse? Yes, we can observe all of these things by observing his behavior on TV, by talking to informants who work with him in the White House, by um, looking at his own writings on Twitter. So we have ample evidence for being able to make these uh, conclusions based on his own words, his behavior, and the observations of those who work closely with him. So even though he's not been sitting across a table from you in your office, you feel that you have adequate evidence to make the claims that you're making? 
a personal interview is not the gold standard for making a diagnosis, especially when you're dealing with someone who's severely personality disordered like Donald Trump, who's just gonna lie to your face and bully you anyway. Uh, so uh, in fact, research shows that the diagnostic interview is not the most uh, reliable method of forming a diagnosis, precisely because some patients will be dishonest or give you distorted or, or information or just outright lie, as in the case of Donald Trump. So having objective information about how they behave, what they say, and what other people have observed is actually far more reliable, and that's just a statistical fact. Very interesting. Okay, well, let's return again to what drew my attention to you, and that's that article that Steve wrote um, about uh, his experience as being an Air Force officer, an Air Force doctor, who had been uh, in charge, among other things, of making evaluations uh, of people uh, who were going to be allowed to get near nuclear weapons, maybe transport them one place to another, that sort of thing. And mm -hmm. uh, Steve made the remarkable assertion that uh, if, if Donald Trump had been private Trump and had been someone who had been applying for such a position that he doesn't think that he would have approved him. Exactly. In fact, the, they're called PRP standards, and what they um, the PRP standards are actually pretty uh, direct, which is that the uh, the soldier or the airman has to be of the highest level of honesty, stability, reliability, and trustworthiness. So. Steve makes the point that if President Trump were Airman Trump and he heard that he was bullying people on Twitter, that he was lying, that he was violating rules and norms, uh, that he would become highly concerned and would pull his PRP status. So we actually have the situation where someone who is not psychologically fit, objectively not psychologically fit to load the bombs onto the planes has unilateral authority over whether they're launched. Okay, so this is something that is shared, this opinion is shared from a variety of perspectives by a number of people in your group. Could you tell me about some of the people who contributed to this book and uh, tell me what their particular arguments or their particular perspectives were? Yeah, well, first of all, in terms of this issue of his being psychologically unfit, we actually get that from a number of different perspectives. Uh, Dr. Siegel from Cornell talks about him being erratic. Uh, David Reese uh, talks about the fitness for duty evaluations he's done with policemen and argues that if Donald Trump were a policeman, he'd have to take away his gun. And William Enyart, who was a former congressman from Chicago uh, and former general, uh, said that uh, Donald Trump would not get security clearance, uh, that uh, both for his psychological behavior, but also for his potential dalliances with uh, uh, Russians, that that would be excluded. He would be excluded. The other concern we have is that in my essay, what I talk about, as I started in the beginning of this uh, program talking about, is that I believe Donald Trump is actually deteriorating. So that not only is he unfit and dangerous, but people need to understand that every day our risk goes up. In addition to his deteriorating personality disorder, which Eric Fromm said eventually leads to psychosis, that we see in Donald Trump real evidence of delusions, grandiose delusions, paranoid delusions, you know, saying that he won the popular vote, that he had the biggest crowd size. Uh, that he was offices were bugged by Barack Obama. These are classic grandiose and, and paranoid delusions. In addition to that, we also see evidence of cognitive decline. If you compare his cognitive functioning, if you compare the way he spoke in interviews in the 1980s to the way he speaks now, it's a shocking uh, decrease in functioning. That he would um, use polished paragraphs, complete sentences, and express himself in an articulate way with a fairly high vocabulary. 
Now you listen to interviews, you can't even understand what he's saying. It's like word salad. He can't finish a sentence. Uh, he overuses superlatives, which is a sign of pre-dementia. He's um, constantly repeating the same things over and over again. But he actually can't seem to complete a thought without drifting into irrelevancies. So while some people may be aware, we actually urged Ronnie Jackson to give him a cognitive screening. That was his physician. Uh, and Ronnie Jackson did that. What The fact that he passed the uh, Montreal Cognitive Assessment means that he's not grossly demented. The questions are things like, can you identify a lion? Can you say three numbers backwards? So no, he's not grossly demented, but he, well, especially for people who are intelligent, they can lose a lot of IQ points before they can no longer identify a lion. So what we're seeing is someone who is in the process of a likely organic cognitive decline. And what that means is he's going to be less and less capable intellectually, as well as uh, being impaired psychiatrically, to deal with a nuclear crisis or to deal with any situation. Well, that's awfully frightening. Um, the credentials of both of yourself and of the other authors in your book are all extremely impressive. Have you gotten any pushback from equally credentialed people in your field? Have there been other psychologists or psychiatrists who have differed in their opinions? Well, we've gotten a lot of pushback from the professional associations, the American Psychological and the American Psychiatric Association. Interestingly, I have yet to see one professional argue that he is psychologically fit. I have yet to find one. Uh, what they're saying is, shut up. You're not allowed to say that. You know, that, that they're arguing about whether we have the right to speak, not about whether we're correct. Not one in mental health professional has made the opposite argument that, that he's okay. Not None that I've more of. I'm not saying that they don't exist in planet Earth, but um, the argument is always about the Goldwater rule and never about the mental fitness of Donald Trump. My goodness. All right. I think you've described what you think his problems are. What's the solution to this? Impeachment. And the way road to impeachment is for there to be a massive blue wave in the 2018 election. I think that if we could trust the Republicans to be honest, they would remove him under the 25th Amendment because he is psychologically unfit. But that ship has sailed. The only way to gain control of this out-of-control madman is to politically, there's only a political solution. There isn't a psychiatric solution. If in fact he was not president, there's a good chance he would be committed for evaluation. And I mean that quite literally, uh, because here is someone who has access to weapons, who is unstable, uh, and who is threatening to use them. Under those conditions, we might very well involuntarily commit someone for evaluation, but obviously that's not an option here. And so the only way that we can gain any kind of control here is a political solution, which is to have a Congress who will be a check and balance, who will set controls on him, and ultimately, hopefully, will remove him because he is unfit and dangerous. Well, of the two constitutional options for removal, uh, you may very well be correct that the only one that might happen politically, if there is a Democratic takeover of one or both houses of Congress, is impeachment. Um, but the constitutional mechanism that seems most appropriate to the situation you describe would be the 25th Amendment. So, so could you describe a little bit what that process would look like and what you think that the cabinet and the vice president should do under these circumstances, even if they're not going to be willing to do it? Well, we've been working uh, closely with Jamie Raskin, who's a congressman from Maryland, who's proposed House Resolution 1987. Uh, uh, Jamie Raskin is actually a, a constitutional scholar, uh, and what he has proposed, what he's noticed is in the 25th Amendment, there is a provision saying that a body should be established by Congress that can evaluate a president should it be necessary 
for uh, competence, but Congress has never set up that body. And so what he's proposing is that there be a panel of nonpartisan medical doctors, psychiatrists, and retired senior politicians from both parties that would objectively, as a commission, evaluate the president if there's some reason to believe that he may be mentally incompetent. Uh, so that law, of course, is also stalled. And even to pass that resolution, we would need, again, a Democratic Congress. It has quite a few Democratic uh, co-sponsors. It was like 60 last time I checked, but I think it's probably gone up since then. Uh, but no Republican co-sponsors. Hmm. Well, as I'm sure you know, impeachment requires uh, that Congress uh, accuse him of having committed a high crime or misdemeanor. And possibly that's true. I mean, the, the Congress itself defines what that phrase means when it votes on impeachment. But again, based on your arguments, it seems to me that the Raskin uh, bill would be the more appropriate way to go if, in fact, the basis for the removal were going to be a lack of mental competence. So do you see that as a possibility? Do you, if, if uh, I guess it would have to be a very significant Democratic takeover uh, in both the House and the Senate in order to get something like that approved. Right. And of course, the thing about the 25th Amendment, it is, you, as you pointed out, it is the cabinet, the vice president and the cabinet who refer him for this evaluation. So even if Democrats were to take over both houses of Congress, it would have no effect. They could pass House Resolution 1987, but it wouldn't uh, allow them to initiate the, the 25th Amendment solution. So really, practically speaking, impeachment is our only mechanism. And in this case, his mental unfitness is really only one of the reasons for impeaching him. Uh, what high crime and misdemeanor has he not committed? I think that might be a shorter list. <laughs> so is that then a fair statement? Then that is why you've written this book and that is uh, why you are sounding the alarms and warning everyone is that that's, that's the solution you're, you're trying to, uh, to reach, impeachment in the, in the near term. Yes. And that's also the reason that we're making this documentary, uh, Hashtag Unfit. Uh, we're still trying to raise money for it. So um, if you want to go to Hashtag Unfit Kickstarter, we'd appreciate it. And also, if you want to learn more about his mental illness, you can go to trumpspotting.com. But um, the, the thing is, is that, um, yes, that is why we're sounding the alarm, because this is our only chance to actually make a difference, to actually solve the problem. And our only chance is going to come in this 2018 election. You're listening to your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Gartner, a psychologist from Johns Hopkins University, who is the leader of a group called Duty to Warn. And as John has been telling us, he feels that mental health professionals have a duty to warn us about Donald Trump's mental stability. After the break, we'll finish our conversation with John Gartner. Stick around. WETS is proud to produce your weekly constitutional, and we're able to create this program through the support of listeners just like you. You can become a sustaining member of WETS for just a few dollars a month and help keep programs like your weekly constitutional and many others on the air and available to our community. Visit our website at WETS.org to become a sustaining member. It's your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris. Uh, today we're talking about the professional debate over whether mental health professionals should comment on a sitting president's mental stability. Earlier we heard from Dr. Charles D.K. of Yale University who thinks that something called the Goldwater Rule prevents or should prevent such commentary. Now, however, we're speaking to Dr. John Gartner who thinks very differently. Just before the break, Dr. Gartner said that he thinks the only real opportunity to do something about this threat is going to come in the 2018 elections. In the meantime, and 
in the event that uh, the Democrats don't take over Congress uh, and are unable to impeach him. Do you have any suggestions as to how some sort of nuclear holocaust could be averted? I mean, is there any other break or check upon the president that you're aware of, that any other person who could prevent him from, from doing this sort of thing? Yes, actually, there is a bill in Congress that has some bipartisan support, by the way, especially in the Senate. Uh, Bob Corker uh, at one point championed this bill that would make it the law that the president needs congressional approval for a first nuclear strike if it's not a retaliatory strike. Uh, so if, if, we, if we were under attack, then you obviously don't have time to go to Congress. But uh, if you're going to initiate a, um, a nuclear first strike, Congress who has the war powers would have to approve it. Uh, it's House Resolution 69 and Senate Bill 200. Um, so far, um, there seemed to be a move uh, at first for some bipartisan support, but as always seems to happen, uh, the Republicans melted and it was tabled. Well, the Constitution itself vests the power of declaring war in Congress, and we've done several episodes, uh, not only on the 25th Amendment, but mm -hmm. also on those war powers and how Congress has uh, ceded much of that power, especially since uh, the First World War and certainly since the Second World War to the executive. Yes. And uh, how just even more broadly, it might be a good idea for Congress to reassert its power in that area. Uh, certainly with regard to a first nuclear strike, I think uh, a lot of people would agree yes. on that subject. I certainly see where you're going with this, and I certainly understand the arguments um, in favor of reining in any executive, not just this executive, when it comes to nuclear weapons. But based mm -hmm. upon your concerns, my concern is that um, we will simply find ourselves in some sort of crisis and that decisions will be ha having to be made very, very quickly, and that we might simply find ourselves in a situation where somebody makes a mistake. Um, I, I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with all of the, the, uh, the, ex uh, the executive committee uh, transcripts uh, from the National Security Council during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but they're all out there. Yeah. And, and it seemed to me that, uh, you know, ultimately cooler heads prevailed. But there were several moments during the Cuban Missile Crisis yes. where somebody could have made a bad decision and everything would have blown up. And I've always wondered if it was divine intervention that, uh, that kept us... Um, that kept us alive during that time. That to me seems to be the greatest danger, not so much a deliberate choice to, to, to nuke the planet, but getting it into a situation that's badly handled where somebody with command authority makes a launch and then everybody's retaliating. One of the chapters in Rocket Man is actually by two historians who focus on the uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm -hmm. and it's a very sobering analysis because you see how close we came to nuclear war, and how masterfully Kennedy handled it to uh, produce the good outcome that we got, and then they basically say, <laughs> would would Donald Trump be able to uh, be so skillful? Uh, and their answer, of course, is no, because uh, think about what was happening. The military was were urging Kennedy to attack Cuba, which would have resulted in nuclear war. They were giving him information that was actually fallacious. He was able to realize that their information was false and their opinion or their judgment was wrong. That's not something I trust uh, someone as reactive and um, aggressive uh, as Trump to be able to do. But also he did something very sophisticated. He was able to empathize with Khrushchev and put himself in Khrushchev's shoes and come up with a solution that allowed Khrushchev to save face while at the same time getting those nuclear bombs off of Cuba. So Trump obviously is someone who is radically incapable of empathy. This is somebody who, when he met with the Parkland shooting survivors, actually had on a little card as a crib sheet to remember to say, I hear you. 
think about that. Um, this is someone who has um, reacted to the children being separated at the border by saying that those are phony stories of, of woe. So this is someone who's incapable of empathy. So how is he going to empathize with our enemy uh, and be able to craft in real time, as the clock is ticking, a solution that will um, be a win-win. So, and especially when you add that his personality is one to demonize other people and attack them impulsively, and also that cognitively he's failing. So you put all that together, and also he's in his own political trouble with the Mueller investigation, and he's put people in power now who are not gonna be a check on him. He's essentially systematically extruded all of the adults in the White House, that or sidelined or silenced them so that he now there is now nobody not one person in the white house who can say no to him and have him listen so we are completely running on instinct and impulse in an impulse ridden person whose thinking is distorted maybe even to a degree that is psychotic and who really is a malevolent personality and there's nobody to guide or restrain him the safety is off the gun People get very angry when anyone makes a comparison between our current president and Hitler. Um, and I understand that. Uh, you, you don't mention Nazis lightly in this sort of thing. But one uh, comparison that I've heard people make that does seem to be somewhat salient is that when Hitler came to power, that many of the people who supported him weren't necessarily Nazis themselves. They were people who were you know, titans of business or maybe the German military. And they always... Uh, consoled themselves with the idea that they would be able to control him. And in right. fact, I heard many, many people right around the time of the 2016 election express misgivings at the outcome, but then they would say, well, people will be able to control him. They will, they will bring him back uh, more toward the center. Right. Uh, and what I'm hearing from you is that he has removed all the people who might do that and is at a point now where there's nobody who's going to control his, uh, his more negative impulses. Exactly. And, you know, I've also gotten uh, criticized for you know, mentioning the H word mm -hmm. <laughs> in comparison to, to Trump. Right. And let's, and just, and let's, just, be, let's just be clear. I mean, he's not running concentration camps. As far as I know, he hasn't murdered anybody. So Correct. we're not saying, at least I'm right. not saying, and I'm, I don't think you're saying that he's the same as Hitler. We're simply drawing a parallel that you have an extreme personality who's come to power. People who even who support him were saying, well, don't worry about that. You know, others will control him. And I was always very wary of that because presidents have the ultimate authority and presidents can fire any of their advisors. And we have seen a slew of people get fired in this White House. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, if you go back to Eric Fromm, Eric Fromm, uh, when he developed the term of malignant narcissism, it was obviously in reaction to Hitler because he fled Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. But what he wrote in his own writings is that this was a, about the psychology of all dictators. So we can say that without question, Hitler is in a class by himself as the worst example of a malignant narcissist, but he's also a member of a class of other people who share some of the same psychological characteristics, this narcissism, paranoia, psychopathy, and sadism. And so what we don't know is how far Donald Trump can or would progress uh, down that road if he were given a free hand. Uh, so the th point of the, you know, I was raised with the phrase never again. Never again doesn't mean look out for a German with a mustache. Uh, there'll only be one of those. But it means when you see the early signs, the incipient signs of a totalitarian, authoritarian takeover of a democracy, you must speak up. Because if you don't, 
it does progress along very predictable lines. And so if we stop with the comparison of Hitler per se and just look at other dictators, look at Erdogan, look at Milosevic, there are many dictators we can look at. Duterte. Who have followed, yeah, Duterte, very good example, who followed this playbook. And part of it is what we're seeing at the border right now to demonize a minority, to make it sound as if society is under attack, that our survival is threatened by this actually innocuous or actually benign minority. I mean, Jews weren't attacking Germany, they were helping Germany. You know, These uh, people who are coming across our border are, are actually providing labor that we need. They're, they commit crimes at a lower rate than uh, native-borns, and they spend money and they pay taxes. So they actually help the economy. Uh, but we're demonizing them, saying they're vermin, dehumanizing them, saying they're under attack, and then what are we doing? Then we're suspending uh, the rule of law. We're saying they don't need due process. They don't have a right to claim asylum, which by law they do. So actually Trump is violating the law. He's saying he is the law. And we're doing something uh, draconian, separating them from the children. It's doing something cruel and, in, and, and inhuman uh, as a way of, uh, and then uh, saying that's okay. So it it, it doesn't, I think when we compare him to Hitler, the problem is that produces so much reaction and then people tune you out. But the differences, even if you admit, and we have to admit the extreme differences, it's the similarities that actually are important right now. Because this is the, we have one author in the book who said, look, he's not crazy at all. He's just following the strong man's playbook. That there is a playbook for democracies. Look, Plato said that democracies always end in autocracy, because the natural tendency is for some mob rule to take over, some majoritarianism. And if you look, there are many democracies that have ended in authoritarianism, Germany, uh, Yugoslavia, Turkey, uh, the Philippines, these are all examples. Russia even <laughs> had elections. So the point is, is that uh, what we need to be aware of is how one of these strongmen, who is a, a, a narcissist, who is a sociopath, who is a sadist, and who is paranoid, uh, is able to literally hijack a democracy and turn it into an authoritarian state. And the recent poll said that 50% of Americans are very worried that Americans' democracy is going to be destroyed and turned into an autocracy. So this is not a hysterical lunatic fringe. Half the country is very worried that this well, yeah. is happening here now. What you mentioned a moment ago when you went through that litany of democracies that have voted themselves out of existence, that was the essential problem that James Madison devoted himself to in the year or so before the Constitutional Convention. He went back to that second floor library at Montpelier and he read and he thought, and that was the basic question he was asking himself, why is it that all democracies and republics have failed? and almost all. I think there were a couple of Swiss cantons that had been around for a few hundred years. And what can we do, if we're about to embark on this experiment, uh, what can we do to form a government that would not collapse in that way? And of course, the solution he came up with was when he borrowed from Montesquieu, the separation of powers. Uh, not only, uh, certainly right. the states were preserved, but then he had three branches of government. And what I'm hearing from you is that that constitutional framework, that division of power, is not necessarily doing what it's supposed to do. Exactly. Um, and, it, it, the, the, you know, as alarming as it is to have a personality like Donald Trump, James Madison expected a Donald Trump to arrive sooner. What he wasn't prepared for is that Congress, which is supposed to be a separate power and supposed to check the president, that they would become his um, lackeys, 
that they would enable all of his destructive anti-constitutional behavior. This was some, and the third thing that he didn't anticipate is that they would do so in coordination with a foreign enemy. I think at this point, we simply have to be honest and admit that the Republican Party stands for Russia. Uh, it's a, that there is a worldwide movement right now uh, to diminish democracy and increase nationalistic totalitarianism. It's taking place in uh, all across Europe, uh, and Russia is behind every single one of those efforts. And their method is to have a, a puppet that they support. And Donald Trump, look, let's just cut to the chase. He has not just been colluding with Russia. He's been part of the Russian mob for 20 years. This is a guy who's been in, deeply embedded in the Russian oligarchy uh, from the beginning. So he's not just this isn't just a quid pro quo. This is like if we elected a member of the Gambino family. He's part of the family. Um, and so we do have a Russian puppet as our president. So we're really no better than you know Ukraine when uh, Paul Manafort was advising their Russian puppet. So we are really in uh, a stage that the founders were worried about foreign interference. That's why they had things like the emolument clauses. And they were worried about a dictator. And that's why they created the separation of powers. And both of those things, now we have a perfect storm where we have not only a dictatorial president, but a supine uh, party that is in control of Congress and maybe even the Supreme Court working in coordination with a foreign enemy. It is literally a perfect storm of the worst fears that the founders had. Well, let's assume for the moment that there is no nuclear war. Uh, what I'm hearing from you is you think what we're going to do is keep marching down the road, like, like Turkey apparently has almost done now, marching down the road where we have a final moment where we effectively stop becoming a democratic republic and we tilt, go over the line, and we're an authoritarian state. Any idea, uh, based upon your diagnoses and your perception of this man, how he might do that if, in fact, that happens? Well, I think we're actually watching it. You know, when he says, uh, we don't need due process, uh, I can just imprison a large group of people because I'm telling you they're dangerous. Um, you know, it's like, I think, you know, when they came for the homosexuals, I said nothing because I was homosexual. When they came for the gypsies, I said nothing. When they came for the Jews, I said nothing. And then they, when they came for for me, there was no one to say anything. This is the first step. I think it's very important to realize that what's happening on the border right now will def is very much defining whether we do reach that tipping point. Mm -hmm. There was a friend of mine on Facebook, and I won't mention any names, but was talking about her, I think, seven-year-old daughter. And the seven-year-old daughter was reacting to what was happening on the border and the separations. And the daughter was very frightened. And her mother was trying to comfort her and say that you don't have to worry about that. She said, but if they can do it to those kids, why can't they do it to me? Exactly. And I think the seven-year-old just saw right through all the arguments to the, the essential point that you're making. Well, um, let's assume that there's no war, but let's assume that there is no democratic wave either. What do you suggest other than impeachment or removal under the 25th Amendment? I'm, well, so, I'm, I really I'm, believe... I'm guessing you don't. You're not going to suggest that we just give up. <laughs> no, you're correct about that. And I'm not. And I'm not flying to Canada either. I'm going to take my. I'm going to take my stand right here. Um, and uh, it is do or die. To be honest, I think that we have to look at these elections, 2018 and 2020, as really life or death. This is beyond what party you're in, what party you, you know, what, what your, even your political beliefs are. This is an existential threat. You have one choice, 
do you want America to live as a democracy or do you want it to die as an autocracy? That's all. That's the only thing on the ballot. Well, once again, what's the title of your book, John? Thank you. Oh, the title of the book, Rocket Man, uh, Nuclear Madness in the Mind of Donald Trump. Well, you succeeded in one thing. You've succeeded in scaring the heck out of me. Um, and uh, I sincerely hope, I will say this for the record, I sincerely hope that you're incorrect. Um, but these That's are two of us. Yeah, but these are, but these, it's kind of how I feel like global warming. I sincerely hope that all the scientists in the world are just making a terrible mistake. But um, be that as it may, thank you very much for your time and for your very cogent summary of the uh, arguments. And uh, if people are interested, they can find you. Your book is out now, isn't it? Yes, and they can also go to our website at dutytowarn.org, and they can look up our uh, our documentary, hashtag unfit, either on Kickstarter or trumpspotting.com. Thanks, John. Thank you for having me. And that's our show. Thanks to both of our two guests, Dr. Charles D.K. of Yale University and Dr. John Gartner, the founder of a group called Duty to Warn. Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our distribution engineer is Chad Barrett. Our music is by Hannibal's Elephant. Check them out on SoundCloud. My name is Stuart Harris, and remember, you are a part of the American experiment. Mm -hmm.